So last, last evening I began talking about the three universal marks of existence and I went over uh, the first of the three. The first one is anicca, which is impermanence. And now I'd like to speak about uh, dukkha, which is suffering or the unsatisfactory nature. And then also anatta, which is the um, impersonal nature. The first part of it, talking about impermanence, which actually affects the seeing of the next two, the realizing of the next two. The first part was longer, the longest part. So we ended up where I talked about how in Anicca there's the understanding that um, all conditioned things arise and pass away. All conditioned things are subject to arising and passing away. And all the conditions that make for that one arising to come up, change, and pass away, all the conditions that came before that, all of those too have uh, being subject to arising, changing, and passing away. So we come to see in our practice, very experientially, how it's just what is called empty phenomena rolling on. And when we're not understanding this experientially, it can seem like just an idea. Or we just see impermanence in a very uh, shallow way. Uh, Like we do see impermanence in the change of nature, the change of a day, growing up and growing older and dying, for example. All of those things we come to see and understand with wise view. But a deeper wise view is seeing it in our practice uh, as we deepen into each moment and see what we might call a moment-to-moment change. So I'd like to speak today about how realizing anicca affects realizing dukkha and how realizing anicca see suffering with a wiser view. So of course when we see impermanence, as I spoke about yesterday, there is an experiential understanding that there's nothing to hold on to. Can't hold on, because seeing deeply, there's the understanding that it's all just kind of moving along, trying to put our hand out or our mind out and say stop or hold on to anything. It becomes what we call in the Dharma circles, rope burn, because you're trying to grasp something that's moving, and it's like grasping a moving rope. And so what what you do is you get burned. It hurts when you try to hold on to something that's always moving. And I love this saying by Suzuki Roshi that true wisdom doesn't lie in letting go, but in realizing that everything is going away. It's sort of a a little bit of a different view um, because we, we have this 
saying that we have for ourselves and others. I'm just going to let go. Or when somebody else is suffering, you say, well, just let go and it'll be all right. Just let go. And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you can't make those commands or demand that on yourself or anyone else, of course. But when we see for ourselves that it just keeps moving along, things that we wanted to happen didn't happen, things that happened and can't stop are still going, things that we don't like are here, are still here, and moving along in different ways, sometimes getting more annoying than peaceful. And so we see that this is dukkha. There's nothing to hang on to. There's nothing to let go of. And because it's all going anyway. It's like one of our uh, teachers, actually the, the root teacher of uh, this tradition here, Achan Shah, talked about when you have a cup, it's better to see it already broken. Uh, better to see that if it's not broken now, it's going to get that way. <laughs> or it's going to get lost. Or, you know, it's, it's going to have those um, little cracks in it that actually look, you know, for a mind like myself, they, I actually can see that is very pleasant, you know, and has these little cracks in it. And um, it, it looks more beautiful to me in a way. But I see the beauty of it rather than the impermanence in it. And sometimes you can hang on to that beauty. And so we understand that we can't control. You know, things are going to do what they do according to unseen, uh, unseen causes and conditions. Ancient twisted karma, as the Zen people say. So awareness and insight at deep levels tells us that there is nothing but change and flux. And as we continue to practice, we see that more and more. And more and more we become in alignment with the truth of how things are. So as I was um, saying yesterday a bit and, and this morning too, sometimes, you know, just sitting here seeing something arise in the mind, a mental state or a sensation in the body, and there is uh, like a less of a reactivity to noticing that it's happening. And there's just awareness and pain, which has all these different fluxes in it going on, moment to moment. And then there's a, an attitude that comes up in the mind in relationship to that pain that's also coming up. And we see uh, that it's arising and that's changing too. It has very a very different um, density to it sometimes. Sometimes it gets expansive. Sometimes it gets, the mind gets contracted. Sometimes it's heat in the mind. Sometimes it feels very cold and frigid. Even mental states can have elemental conditions like fire element, earth element, water element, and air element. You know, it, it can feel like that also in the mind. And we see it coming and going, coming and going. And we start becoming, under, understanding starts to come just on its own. We don't 
stop and say, oh yeah, I realize it's all impermanent, or I realize I can't hold on to anything here. But as we keep doing our practice, as we keep being mindful, and uh, we're not having reactivity to things that happen, these are the understandings that get inculcated in the wisdom factor of the mind. It starts seeing anicca without making a big deal out of it. Start seeing dukkha, can't hold on to anything without making a big deal out of it. It's better if we were able to say, uh, put it together sometimes even theoretically, intellectually, and say, aha, now the mind can see how dukkha is all about that you can't hold on to anything. Dukkha is all about the unsatisfactory nature of life. And though I didn't want to accept that before, I can see that it's true by experience, not by somebody telling me so or reading it over and over again or just agreeing with people who seem wise, by really seeing it in experience. So dukkha is that all conditioned things all formations are unsatisfactory because they are unstable. They can't be relied upon to provide lasting happiness. That's why it's said in the first noble truth, dukkha sacha. There is the truth of dukkha. And so it, right now it may be ho-hum to you, but it might be. It might be a deep understanding already. But um, there's a time that will come when maybe something hits us really, really hard and then we can have the understanding of dukkha in a very deep way and realize, oh, this is the truth of dukkha. This is the truth of the unsatisfactory nature of life. And the mind right now is in the Dhamma and it's understanding some kind of a an insight that maybe was had before, but now it's seen in a different way. Maybe it's seen in a deeper way. Maybe it's seen from a different perspective. But all of a sudden we get it like we've never gotten it before. This is really dukkha. And it's not the dukkha that is personal. It's an understanding that this dukkha is universal. This is what's going on in all of life. And for the longest time, we might have been making this dukkha all about me, all about my condition in life, my suffering, my whatever, like in the Dhammapada, one of the first, if not the first verse says, he or she beat me, you know, or scorned me or whatever it is. And um, then we kind of live in that over and over and over again. But in these moments when we really see dukkha, it's more like, oh, I get it. Or, you know, the wisdom gets it. It's universal. It's really not personal. This is how things are happening in this conditioned reality. And so all of a sudden it gets to be a bigger view And it's not in this little pressure cooker of me, mine, and I. 
and we feel a kind of relief from understanding dukkha, from having the wisdom, dhamma understanding of dukkha. And it's not about our problem. It's still there, and we have to face it. We have to know what strategy are we going to take to um, work with this so that the best outcome can come for everybody. But uh, it isn't like that kind of self-flagellating, guilt-tripping oneself or even another, uh, that kind of suffering, that kind of dukkha. It becomes universal. And in, uh, that's one step. That's not the final step. And then that understanding of the universality of dukkha can become really impersonal. It's not just that it happens to everyone. But at some point, the not-self characteristic is seen in that dukkha, is seen in that anicca also. So somehow they all come together bit by bit. So as there is the ordinary dukkha of life that is unstable that the Buddha talked about. So just like to, of course, you know, channel um, or bring in exactly the Buddha's words. So I'd like to say these Buddhas, the words of the Buddha about this ordinariness of dukkha that takes place in this realm of existence that we experience because we're human. The Buddha said, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging, which means the everythingness of what makes up this mind-body continuum, and uh, I spoke about that this morning and continue later again. The five aggregates of clinging is dukkha. And so we see from this that um, what is the origin of dukkha? Birth. Birth is the origin of dukkha. Just being born in this level of existence that's in, in this life, in this particular mind-body continuum life, that is the origin of dukkha. So we're, we're born into this realm. And so we have kind of like our whole lives to start realizing it. And the sooner the later, the better. Um, but luckily, you know, we have the good fortune to come across the Dhamma that can say and bring out these understandings that we can say to ourselves, is this true? I'm going to find out by doing this practice, if it's true or not. And so this is part of our uh, birthright, is to understand deeply these three universal characteristics. So basically what the Buddha is saying is there's pain in the body and there's pain in the mind. And it's not about just saying, oh yeah, there's pain. Of course, we have to bring the wisdom of understanding and the compassion also 
because without the compassion, you can't open up to it. It's just either denying it, avoiding it, or another way is intellectualizing it, and really that doesn't get too deep. We can just say it, and then we think it's, you know, we're done with that. But then when we're faced with something really hard, we notice that, oh, I really haven't understood dukkha in that deep way that's possible. So the, the, the dukkhas that I talked about just now, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, all of that, um, we don't need to meditate on those things to get this understanding. We know that it's difficult. We see the difficulty. We feel it. Things happen we don't like. We lose things. We lose people. And it's painful. And that. And I'm not just saying that like, okay, um, get over it. <laughs> Have you ever had somebody tell that to you, you know, in the Dhamma? Well, get over it. It's dukkha. It's like, wow, no wisdom, no compassion, just wisdom. It doesn't work. You need compassion in this life to, to really be able for the true sense of being able to face it is uh, needed. So it's painful, and this is called dukkha. These things that I just talked about, birth, aging, death, pain in the body, um, this is actually translated as dukkha dukkha. <laughs> double dukkha, actually. So, there's a fact, there is this fact of suffering, and we're learning how to navigate this, to accept the comings and goings of life in general. And we have strategies to do this, Dhamma strategies, like equanimity, like compassion, like when it gets too hard, we can turn our attention to sympathetic joy. You know, one of the four Brahma-viharas, just knowing when there's joy around us and being able to be happy for the joy that another person's feeling, that's sympathetic joy. So the strategies that we learn are being able to navigate our lives through kind of like the, the relational ways of doing that in the Dhamma, mainly using awareness and all of the four Brahma-viharas that I just mentioned loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So then there is called, I just mentioned what is called dukkha-dukkha, and then there is a dukkha of change, which is called viparinama-dukkha. That's when we start to see the vulnerability and insecurity of life more deeply. When we're in practice like this, and we get to see life through like an electron microscope of mindful awareness. When painful moments come, it's a relief that they go. We want them to stay, but they don't. Or we want the pain to go away, but it doesn't go away. They arise again. We see, we just see through the experience of this, the unpredictability and unreliability to experience something that's going to be always, forever, enduringly pleasing to us. It just isn't possible. I mean, maybe we can go to one of those really, really high jhana realms where it can last 
for lifetime, for world cycles, they say. Um, how the idea of you know some enduring um, master or God became kind of created, but it doesn't happen that way. They things stop. They go away. They die. They don't endure on this conditional realm. If we think they're going to last forever, then it's it's really delusion or ignorance. There's a friend of mine who brought this out so clearly um, about this, you know, something pleasant to arise and thinking that it's going to last the whole day or whatever. Uh, she came to me in practice one time and she said, I had a really good sitting this morning. It was really wonderful. And just told me all the blissful things about it. And then at the end she said, you know, Kamala, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. (laughs) It's like we still have this kind of underlying unconscious thought that it's going to keep going, right? If we just, oh, how did I sit now? Oh, I had this little pillow under my right knee and my shoulder was a little bit up like that so it wouldn't hurt when it was down and I better wear the shawl I was wearing and you try to make everything just right and this is a shawl that Manindraji gave me, I'll wear that. But no, you can get all the same conditions together but the inner conditions are different and you don't have that good sitting that you think you're going to have. So at deeper levels there is what is called, when we see more deeply into how things are so inconsistently, unpredictably, unreliably not the same. It's changing all the time. This is called Sankara Dukkha. So I talked about Dukkha Dukkha um, and the pain that happens of loss, pain in the body, etc. And then there's Viparinama Dukkha, which is a Dukkha of change. And then there's Sankara Dukkha. This Sankara Dukkha is the the sense of the oppressiveness of existence. Now, when I was, when Manindra would come and stay in my home, and uh, he would try to tell me this kind of thing, you know, and I'd think, what is he talking about? But he would say, I would say, how are you, Manindraji? How, how is it? How is your morning? Or something like that. And he said, well, he said, you know, every day I wake up, I have to brush my teeth. And then I'd say, yeah, <laughs> you know. And then he'd say, and we still have to eat. And sometimes we have to prepare the food. And then to think, you know, like lay people have to go out and they have to work for the food. And then, you know, come home and then still prepare it. And then we still have to eat it and chew, 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 <laughs> chewing, chewing. And then pretty soon you, you don't feel so good, you start burping. And then pretty soon you still have to go to the bathroom so that you can make room to eat again. And then it starts all over again. Every day the whole thing starts all over again. And the beginning I would say, I don't know about this teacher. You know, what, and then what he was trying to tell me is about the oppressiveness of existence. And, and maybe you don't get it right now, like I didn't get it either, but it's a burden of being human. Mm-hmm. That it's just 
we don't know why sometimes we feel uncomfortable. We, we can't put it on anything. I call that dukkha without an object. You know, it's like, I don't know why I feel bad today. It's just, it's just kind of like a bad mood or many conditions I don't know. And it's the oppressiveness of the human condition. Just, I don't wake up happy every day even though there's a lot to be grateful for. I mean, when you think about it, all of us, in terms of the whole world, we live on the top of the heap. You know, we can, we mostly, we can go out and have almost anything we want to eat. We have good friends, you know, all the, all things, warm in the evening and, um, yeah, we have a pretty good life. But sometimes it, it, it just feels like it's burdensome. Life is burdensome. And so it's, it's really important to get to open to that and to say, this is just part of life too, this feeling that comes. Sometimes, in reality, I'll be sitting here and it, everything is really absolutely wonderful. You know, it's so quiet in this hall and, um, you know, nothing to worry about, about the yogis, you're all doing fine. And I'm just sitting here, moments of no pain in the body and really light in the mind. And something, it can be something very small, like a thought. Mm -hmm. And then I feel this thought come in and I realize there's nothing wrong with that thought. It might be just a little thing of like, I wonder when the bell's going to ring. It's not even wanting the bell to ring. Hey, I'm the one who rings the bell. (laughs) It's not about anything. It's just about this little thought comes in the mind and it feels oppressive. Has any of you felt that way? Just the thought feels oppressive. And there's nothing wrong with the thought. It might be a very neutral thought. Like, um, oh, Sue's got a nice shawl on today. You know, it just... And then because the mind has been quiet and it's been impinged with something, it's like, oh, it's not aversion. It's not that kind of thing. It just feels like oppressive. And then then there's there's a response, this is dukkha. That's, some, that's a bit of sankara dukkha. We have these sense organs and we can't turn them off. The mind does its thing, it's thinking. It's, it's not a reactivity to that. It's, not, it's very different from reactivity, like, I don't want this thought. It doesn't even know what the thought is. It's just kind of like some energy that's going to roll through the mind. And it's not about, like, I want something else. You know, it was perfect, perfectly okay just sitting here. So that sankara dukkha, when we feel that, it's just like these sense organs. They're doing their thing all the time. And different ones of them start to have this impingement on the mind. And we can't really turn them off. There's no place to get away from all of this except, yeah, except Nibbana, really, where it's beyond all of this. We can't run away from this truth and we have to face it. And it's so difficult to open to. So whatever the thought was that something has to be enduringly satisfying, 
there's an understanding now that uh, that uh, this is dukkha to think even that something has to be enduringly satisfying. So there's no sense of holding on to anything. You know, even that moment of, oh, sankara dukkha, the mind can relax because it knows that's impermanent. It's dukkha and that's impermanent. And if we're not like making something out of it, which is identifying with it, with a sense of self, which is the next area, then we really see how free, more and more free, the mind can be. Can just let that moment roll by, and the, in that next moment there can be some freedom. So it really means letting go of delusion and ignorance, this understanding of dukkha. It really means letting go of wrong view, and when we see it, when the mind sees it correctly with wisdom, it's part of life to see dukkha dukkha, to see viparinama dukkha, to see sankara dukkha. And so what becomes important? Um, more and more it becomes important to be aware, to be generous, to be loving, to be wise to be empty of delusion, to be empty of greed, to be empty of aversion. And that's what is happening bit by bit, this cleaning out, this purification of the mind, of greed, hatred, and delusion. So that, in a nutshell, is dukkha, and uh, how it's related to anicca. So then realizing more from these two, from anicca and then from dukkha, we start perhaps to open up, or maybe we already have, because they all kind of feather in together, those three characteristics. Uh, The understanding of anatta, or not-self, comes into view, comes into right view. So I want to call your attention, if you've ever seen it, to a Tibetan tanka of the of inter, um, you know, the twelve links of interdependence, the Paticca Samuppada, and then uh, this is samsara. You know, all those twelve links. One leads to another, leads to another. Birth leads to, um, you know, all these different um, experiences of contact, perception, Vedana, and then whatever gets um, uh, related to that, either greed, hatred, or delusion, that all of these things get created on these 12 links. And we keep going around these 12 links to be reborn again and again and again and again without really learning how to get off this wheel of samsara, this wheel of dukkha. So it struck me when um, I looked at one of those tankas and at the top of this wheel of dependent origination is the Buddha. And the Buddha has one hand down here, you know, pointing to these 12 links 
of um, Paticca Samuppada. And then another hand up here pointing to the, the um, soft light of the moon. <coughs> and so what the Buddha is saying, give up this and take up that. And that, that really stood with me, like really giving up being on the same merry-go-round over and over and over again. And so I realized my own, um, you know, the wisdom of the mind that can come up and compassion too that can say, uh, really the aspiration for this life is to be free of all that. And doing what I can, you know, as a human being to do that. So give up this and take up that. You know, something that's not going round and round on this wheel of dependent origination. That's always looking for more and more satisfaction and running away from what's unsatisfying through our the ways we treat life, the ways we treat ourselves. So we begin to see beyond the conceptual reality um, when we're in practice here, seeing and understanding more and more deeply how the component parts of what we term self arise in every moment, how they change and they pass away on the ultimate level of reality, where we're not making something out of whatever's coming up, we're not making a self out of that. We're not identifying with that experience as, oh, this is me, I don't like this, or I like this. It's, it's just seeing things as they are, moment to moment, empirically. So that every time a moment of any bodily sensation arises, it is experienced really as insubstantial. It, it's experienced as empty, empty of self, because there's no self being made about it. It's just this bodily experience that's arising. And there's no reactivity to it when the mind gets really calm and equanimous. And so when there is just this bodily experience arising and there's no attitude that's kind of getting glommed onto it, it's easier to see, oh, it's just this empty phenomena. And seeing that over and over and over again, not creating a sense of self around it or in it at all. It's just a momentary experience arising and passing away. And the same with unpleasant or pleasant or neutral feelings. Same thing as we practiced yesterday, I think. whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, just noticing its arisal, its changing nature, and it passes away by itself. When awareness can truly see that, this, for example, pleasant feeling tone can come up. Awareness can be there, see it arise, pass away, dissolve, maybe something else will come up, But what's happening in that moment is what usually gets connected to that when something is pleasant is the wanting mind. And then a sense of self starts being formed 
around that. But when that just drops and the wanting mind doesn't even come up, that is a moment when the beginning of freedom takes place. Because once attachment rises up in relationship to that pleasant experience, the self has a really good chance to form in that moment, a sense of self. And then carrying everything out that needs self needs to get carried out. The opposite of that is when unpleasant arises. What uh, is kind of like um, the magnet that's happening in unpleasant is aversion. But if aversion isn't there because mindfulness is there and mindfulness is always coming at whatever arises and we've made the habit pattern of that, wisdom has made the habit pattern of that, then mindfulness meets that moment of aversion and that aversion just passes away and no, uh, that mindfulness just passes away and no aversion has arisen to take hold of that unpleasant experience. So there's already an absence of aversion and that just passes away and nothing is kind of reborn in the mind stream to come up again. No moment of unpleasant, no moment of aversion. So that purification of the mind is taking place there. The same with perception, noticing that a memory arises and there's no taking hold of it, of me or mine. It's just perception, remembering, or um, kind of perceiving something in the mind or outside of the mind, outside of the, in the environment, and just awareness, and both of them pass away. And then there is, um, when there is, is an intention arising, an intention to do something, to make something, to create something. That moment of intention arises, and then what arises with it is pure awareness. There's no clinging. There's uh, nothing, attachment or aversion, neither arising. There's no deception. There's no delusion. It's just pure seeing. And even that perception or awareness passes away. And so then we have knowing itself. Knowing of any of these moments, which is actually different from awareness, knowing can arise along with mindfulness, mindful attention, can see that knowing and see that that too is ephemeral. That too is not self. And it just, they both just pass away. So all of these five aggregates of clinging that I mentioned, when there's no clinging and it passes away, there's no self. There's no um, formation of a self there. So we can see in these five aggregates that when sensations of the body arise, we can get identified with it, meaning a, a sense of self forms there. So that's why they call all of them the five aggregates of clinging because of the potential for the mind uh, of, a, of delusion to kind of wrap around it and say, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, about the body. 
The same will happen with perception. The same will happen with feeling tones. The same would happen with intention. The same would happen with consciousness, all five of them. And if none of them are kind of having this wrong view that wraps around it, the wrong view of self that wraps around it and says, oh, all these things together make a self and I'm going to create it right now, boom. By just having this view that that's being done, then um, that's suffering. Identification is suffering. So it can do that with all of them together. It can do that. uh, This idea, wrong view of self can wrap around any one of them or any combination of them. So this is what is understood as, um, you know, the five aggregates of clinging and how self is formed in that manner. It's, It's really important to know this, to understand this, because this is what's happening within us in, in this, these kind of old ideas that the mind has been hanging on to forever and ever for world cycles. So once this kind of wrong view breaks up, then wisdom begins to see life differently and live in more alignment with how life really is rather than the ways and um, misunderstandings we put on life. And then we tend to take a lot of things personally, of course. So the Buddha said about this perception of all this going on this, uh, in the body-mind, about the body, the Buddha said, form is like a lump of form is like a lump of foam. Feeling is like a water bubble. Perception is like a mirage. Volitions are like a plantain trunk, hollow. Consciousness is like an illusion. And so all of these uh, five aggregates of clinging are empty. In In the Buddhist teaching, when we say empty, it means empty of self empty of some enduring um, self that kind of that has a core or that has some <coughs> control over life that we can deem something to be so to stay here forever or to go away because we don't like it it isn't that way it's like so many conditions are coming together all the time and we ex- when we experience this deeply we understand the idea of emptiness of self at the ultimate level of reality. But at the same time, we realize that we live in this relative relational plane. And because we understand how everything is empty, we also understand how everything is connected. As I talked about yesterday, because of that understanding of the universality of everything and the interconnectedness of everything, we come to a, a kind of a, an integrative understanding that on the relative level, yes, there is a self that we need to be careful about. We need to treat ourselves and other people with a great deal of care, compassion, 
But at the same time, we can understand the ultimate level of reality and see really how empty of solidity things are, how empty of self, really, things are. We begin to um, live in that deep alignment with life. And of course, because we're not totally enlightened beings, maybe, um, you know, we'll get there someday, maybe some world cycle, but we can be really feeling a great deal of um, fulfillment because there's a lessening of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's more and more generosity, love, and wisdom that's developing in the mind and the heart. So we come to this understanding that we live in an illusion, as Kala Rinpoche said, We live in an illusion and the appearance of things, appearing because of constant conditions and causes coming together. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So this is the... um, completing the understanding of the three characteristics. And in time, we begin to integrate that into our daily lives, into our life here on the cushion. It's a really important Dhamma talk. Um, as, As Dhamma fairs, we really have to start to take it in if you haven't taken it in yet, and really start to integrate that understanding in our lives. Sometimes it's just at the intellectual level and then we practice, we see it at the deeper level. And so this is what our our, uh, retreat practice is all about. So thank you for being with that. And uh, we have time now for walking, for um, See for half an hour, and then we'll come back for the taking the practice home part uh, of our our time here together. We'll talk about that. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.